So I write up this plan B. He pokes a couple holes in it, asks me a few questions. I file it away. Nine months later, and I, th you know, at that point, I thought we still had a couple years. I go to this meeting in San Antonio, and it's over. Like 70% of our business walks out the door in one meeting. Like many entrepreneurs, Chris Jones built his business off the back of a product that he developed to solve a problem that he had. As an American football player, Chris noticed the gap in the market for durable catcher's gloves with an extreme grip. He developed a glove, started to produce and sell it, and eventually rolled out that product into a distribution business with a partner who would ultimately put his business in a very precarious position. In a single meeting, his partner ended their relationship and took with it 70% of his revenue. Today, Chris is a business coach, an entrepreneur, and a keynote speaker, second to none. In this episode, Chris and I discuss the creation of a product from scratch, finding partners, losing income, and succeeding in the face of certain death. My name is Nick Harrell-Ambus, and I don't want to keep you waiting any longer. So remember, it's not over until it's over. Welcome back to It's Not Over. You know who I am, and with me today is Chris Jones. Welcome to the show. How are you? Really good, thanks, Nick. And you? I am well, thank you. So let's not beat around the bush here. Why don't you kick us off by telling us a little bit about who you are, what sure. you do, and how you got into the business we're going to talk about. Sure. So I'm an entrepreneur, started four different companies in my life. The current one that I'm in is a coaching business, but the one we're going to talk about today is a sporting goods company. Extremely competitive athlete growing up, still fairly competitive today. Just got off the bike this morning. And, um, yeah, I, I just basically saw a problem that I wanted to solve in the marketplace. And I played a lot of sports, but in university, I played American football and I joke, I couldn't catch very well. So I created a better mousetrap. I invented a, a glove for receivers, help you catch the ball better. So really high grip material and made it easier to catch the ball. So that's wow. what started that off. Okay, incredible. And so for me, let me lay a bit more grain groundwork here. So sure. where in the world are you and what year is this that you kind of started to think about inventing this thing? Yeah, so I'm in Calgary, Alberta, Canada. So, and I started the company in 1995. So yeah, a few, few years ago now. Yeah, a few years ago. For context, I was 11. <laughs> <laughs> Wild. I was just learning to code that in I'm 1995. <laughs> I'm not. I'm saying that accomplished and wise. There it is. Okay. Incredible. So you did you start this business and have this idea having built a business before or was this your first one? Yeah, that was my first one. I was, what was I, 20, 20 22 years old. So 21 years old okay. when I started this. Yeah. And you, did you have a specific pull to starting a business or was this just a problem that happened to need to become a business? Um, it was interesting. I started my university degree in science and education. I was good at science in school and I really loved to teach. And so I'm like, oh, I'll take a science education joint degree. Hated the science stuff in university. I'm like, I couldn't get out of there fast enough. Despite being good at it, I just couldn't stand it. And I saw my no future in that world for me that would be me enjoying my life. And my, my, my girlfriend's father at the time was a business consultant. 
And he says, hey, you know what you guys should do is you should start up a business together and you can run it while you're going to university and it'll pay your way through school. And he's like, you should run a pot machine business. And I'm like, oh, okay. And of course, my girlfriend was like, oh, dad, trying to make me do a business again. And I'm like, oh, this sounds really fun. So I went away and I just dug right into it. I researched locations and machines and all this stuff. And I come back to him about a week later and said, I'm out. And he's like, what do, you, what do you mean you're out? And I'm like, I don't want to do this. I think it's a bad business. He's like, why? I said, well, I looked at the machines, first of all, and like buying new ones are really expensive. I don't have any money and leasing them, then I never own anything. I really would rather have an asset at the end. And if I buy used, then I'm paying really high maintenance costs. I don't think that's a great idea. If you look at the margin on the product, like there's not a lot of margin in this stuff, not to mention the locations, all the good locations are spoken for. So I'm in second rate locations, making really small margins and really high overhead. I don't want to do this business. And he was like, oh my God, like, what are you doing in science and education? (laughs) Which was going to be my next question. Like how on (laughs) earth did you at 22 just go, oh, I know what a margin is. Let me go and figure out if this business makes sense. Oh no, this was it. 19. Even more so. Yeah, yeah. My parents were entrepreneurs. They ran a small business, had some family that were, but it came naturally for sure. It just, uh, I don't know, like the my life experience just naturally led to seeing things like that. And, you know, I can figure this out. Mm. And so he was just like, dude, like I coach business owners that are like, in their forties, which I thought was old at the time. I don't anymore. (laughs) And he's like, I coach business owners in their forties that don't have the instincts that you have. And you clearly have a passion for it. Why did, why haven't you taken business in school? And I said, you know, I, I never thought of it. I just never once considered it, but I've known since I was a little kid that I wanted to run my own business. Cause I would see things and I'd like, I remember like six, seven years old, like, I'm like, I need to solve this problem. I should make a product that solves this problem. Hmm. And I didn't do anything about it at that age, but the, those ideas were constantly there and yeah. turning in my head. And so as soon as he said that, I'm like, oh, that's the best idea I think I've ever heard. And I was in university grinding away for B's and B minuses and in science and education. By education, I was getting good marks, but sciences were tough. Hmm. And I went into business and I barely studied and was straight A's. Like I just was in the class. I'm like, well, clearly this is where this is going. And it was, it was a lot of fun. And within a year and a half, I'd started my own business. I mean, that we've got, I'm sure, lots of ground still to cover, but it's such an important point for people listening. And it's a, a quote that has been misattributed, so I don't even know who said it, but judge a fish by its ability to climb a tree and it will always feel like a failure. Yeah. And, and there's so much of that in the world right now because we look to what's cool and what's popular and what your parents think is good, lawyers, doctors, accountants, architects, all these things. But maybe you just need to start a business. Like maybe you're you're ignoring your calling. Yeah, maybe. I think that I think the one tool that I like the best when thinking about things like that is a Kagai. And it's like, what do you love to do? What are you great at? What does the world need and what is the world willing to pay for? Yeah. And you know, if it doesn't satisfy all those four things, I don't think it's a business. And and I think like, you know, passion is really great too, but I actually think taking that up a level, like what's our purpose and like I really started a business out of passion and it didn't align with my purpose. I did that for quite some time. The next business I started was based around my purpose. 
So okay. just interesting, interesting learning. That's a, a, yeah. a hard right turn no. from where where we no, are. No, I mean today. it's a relevant I think it's a relevant right turn because you can yeah. I mean I did the same for my twenties. Basically for a decade I built businesses out of a desire to build a business, not an intent to solve a problem or a purpose that I was trying to fulfill. And when that yeah. is your motivating factor, the businesses are just more difficult than they need to be, and business is already difficult. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So you're 20, you're 19, you're 19. You say no to your girlfriend's father. And then you stumble across this idea that you want to build a real physical product. Yeah. So talk yeah. me through the building. I, I mean, I have some experience on running a fashion company and building a product from the, from scratch. Yeah. So I want to hear about your absolute clusterfuckery trying to build a real world product. Cause I can't imagine it was easy. Yeah, sure. I guess the real the first product was actually a hand warmer because in Calgary, when the snow comes, it gets cold and the football season is in the fall. And so we end up playing in some very cold temperatures. And when I was playing University of Calgary Dinos, we played into sem national semifinals and national finals the first couple of years. And so we were playing well into November in like minus 30 Celsius days, which any Americans listening or, you know, Fahrenheit is bloody cold like it's almost where fahrenheit meets celsius at minus 40 right like minus 20 fahrenheit <laughs> give or that take it's wild it's effing cold and, and it's my like job minus is to 22 catch a ball. fahrenheit yeah and oh i've got a goodness. quarterback who throws the ball really really over hard with a slight wobble <laughs> on it coming in at 100 miles an hour and like you know like i'm trying not to break my fingers have them shatter when the ball hits you know crazy so i invented a, a hand warmer first a pouch to just put around my waist you and you put your hands in when it's really cold huh. because we can't, you know, I try, I tried various gloves, even with gloves, it wasn't warm enough. Right. Cause the gloves yeah. have to be thin with dexterity to catch the ball. Yeah. So I created a hand warmer first and had no idea where to start. I didn't know the first thing about textiles. And my aunt was a costume maker and a really talented costume maker. And, and so I went to her and I'm like, Hey, can you help me build this product? And she's like, okay, well, how many do you need? And I'm like, oh, I need like, we built like 120 of them the first year. And so she built these things. They're most the most incredible, well-built, high-end product, text, you know, materials and all this stuff. And she finished those and she said, Chris, I'm never doing anything like this again. And I'm like, oh, why? And she's like, <laughs> because I'm, yeah, I'm a craftsman. I love to build unique custom products. And this is this was repetitive yeah. and I did it, yeah. you know, I fulfilled the contract, but I won't do it again. It's just not what I love to do. And I'm like, Oh, I totally get it. Thank you for finishing the job. Yeah. Wow. And she did an amazing job. So we started there. And then the next fall is I was going like, okay, well go find another manufacturer, found one of those. And then I was playing Calgary Colts at the time, which is junior football. And came across like people were like my, one of my idols, this Dave Sapunjas guy in the Calgary Stampeders, which is our pro football team in town was wearing these like orange dish gloves. They, Oh man, do I have a set? Yeah. I got a set here. I think. Oh, yeah, maybe not. Sorry, Nick. That would have okay. been fun. Anyways, they were like ugly and orange. That's all I can say. And they were, baggy okay. and you like tape around them and like it didn't match his team colors and but i'm like this guy's nickname was the sponge i'm like oh the sponge is the man if it's good enough for him like it's worthy of a try for me 
And so I try them and we're on the, the big stadium field, the day, like the warm up before a game or running through pregame stuff. And I put these gloves on for the first time and the quarterback throws the ball to me like a mile over my head. And I jump as high as I can jump. And the ball literally sticks to the end of my fingertips. Oh, wow. And I pull the ball in and everybody, I come back into the huddle and everyone's like, dude, that's the most amazing catch I've ever seen. Dude, what the hell just happened? Yeah. Like, how <laughs> did you pull that in? And I'm like, oh, it's all good, man. Just keep them coming. Right. Like, <laughs> football's tough. There's not enough footballs to go around. I'm like, just keep throwing to me, man. And I'm looking at these gloves going, what the fuck was that? Like, there's And they're no legal. Way. Like, there are no yeah. rules against gloves. No, it's it's no, crazy. In rugby, no... that's not a thing. Yeah, I know. We yeah, I tried to launch to rugby. You couldn't have anything yeah. covering your fingertips. But yeah, so we can in football, and there's it didn't leave anything on the ball. It was just a really high grip plastic. Wow. Wow. And everything I tried was a tackified leather, like had hmm. gum worked into the leather, hmm. and it even left a little bit behind, but it was allowed. But this left nothing. But the grip, wow. the friction element component was so high, and I'm just like, this is incredible. And then. Tackified leather, which was the, you know, the market was dominated with at the time the grip wore out. So it started average and went worse. Hmm. And this plastic material that I was wearing started 3X the grip and stayed at 3X the grip. Hmm. Well, it didn't drop. The, yeah. the friction coefficient didn't drop with time where the leather, the leather one dropped. And so I'm just like, wow, this really works. And so I continued wearing them the rest of the year. And, you know, being a 21 year old dude didn't wash the gloves very much and they started to really smell you know and I put them in the laundry but not enough and then I started drying yeah. them out I'm like I would like wash my hands three times after practice and they'd be smelly and I'd be drying out the gloves on the 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 heater in my car on the way home in the middle of summer and like windows rolled down with the heat on like it was it was horrible, Nick, and they got worse and worse. So I bought, you know, I didn't have a lot of money. I, did, I bought a couple extra pairs, but I really could have bought more, I suppose. Anyways, and so I just continued to use them through the rest of the year. And by the end of the year, I'm like, this is crazy. This product is so good from a performance standpoint, but sucks mm. from a fit standpoint, an appearance standpoint, a ventilation standpoint. Doesn't, you know, yeah, anyways, on and on. There's and I'm room like, for improvement. A lot of room for improvement. And I'm like, I'm just going to turn this into something else. And Amazing. so, you know, I'm, my aunt's like, yeah, not, don't talk to me. And I'm like, yeah, no, I got that. I got that. <laughs> but do you know someone who could help me? And she's like, oh, okay. Well, and first off, let me back up one step. My mom helped me. She had an upholstery okay. machine. And we crudely stitched a pair of gloves together, cut the le the grip. We took one pair of gloves, cut them in half, stuck a piece of Lycra on the back and a, a Velcro strap and stitched them together. So we, we basically tore apart one glove to make another one. Yeah. And, you know, Make super crude. Pattern. We made two pair and she's like, that was really, really hard. But, you know, let's, it gave us a prototype. We started yeah. using the prototype. We're like, Nah, this is good. Like one of my buddies was still in the Calgary Colts and he, he grabbed him. He's like, these are awesome. Like, let's, yeah. He, he said he still has them. I talked to him the wow. other day. He said he still got the original pair. That's wild. Yeah. So we created these and, and, and then I went and started calling people and 
I guess the short story long is, you know, a lot of people said no, but I just kept asking, well, if you don't know who does and, yeah. oh, well, call this person. I'd call this person. Well, I talked to this person and they said, you might know. And they're like, I don't know. And one thing led to the next. I ended up running into this company in Calgary that was a vest maker. And they said, actually, there's a lady from Romania on our staff who was a glove maker in Romania. And so no ways. Yeah. So she's like, yeah, I can make something like this. So, you know, the two of us, my lack of expertise, but knowing what I needed and her with enough expertise. And we created our first real production run. And this company, like it was 150 pair, like first run. And, you know, I, I'd come from the world of like, oh, we're going to have to do thousands. And I don't have money for thousands. <laughs> like, yeah. I'm, I'm paying my own way through school with a couple hundred bucks a month for my parents. And anyway, so we figure it out and it works, you know, we make team colors and I literally start going to pro teams and selling them out of cardboard boxes. I'd give away one wow. pair, like a drug dealer. <laughs> get yeah. Them First one is free. The second one you pay for. <laughs> That's right. So yeah. I was like, a, I joked and I got, and I got like literally had seven of the top 10 receivers in our national football in our national wow. league the cfl wearing this product and guys who'd never worn gloves and said they'd never wear gloves and try to pair and they're like oh my gosh chris now i'm hooked and um, i suppose there's a point at which it tips yeah. to i don't want to wear these but if i don't i'm at a disadvantage because other people are wearing them oh 100 percent. well in the 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 relationship to success in football and grip as a receiver is huge because you win or lose a game based on a thrown ball, catch a touchdown. If you drop that ball, you lose the game very frequently. And you're like, oh, you're the yeah. dork who dropped the ball. Or you're the guy who caught the ball and now your contract is bigger. Like, and yeah. you win the championship or the big yeah. game. Like, it's a huge yeah. deal a win, or a drop, or a catch. And so it grew, it grew crazy. And, and how long um, between that first 150 pairs to now the pro teams are, are getting it? Now you've got real traction and this is a real business. Yeah, we probably, so we, that was 96 that we brought the football gloves out. And then by 98, I was winning national competitions with, you know, top players in the league wearing them. And wow. yeah, 99, we were crushing it. 2000, heading into 2000 had a really big change in the business. I tried to find a plastic manufacturer because I needed sheets of the stuff made so of we could make a proper manufactured glove. And getting a custom designed plastic is an enormous deal, I found out. Like, I went to like CEOs of big chemical companies, said, if I can get a million dollars in financing, would you build this for me? And they're like, how many barrels of plastic will you need a year? And I'm like, you know, I don't know. You mean take all the sports gloves in the entire world? It's not a lot of barrels of plastic, right? Yeah. And they're like, we need tens of thousands a month to make this worthwhile. Wow. And I'm like, oh yeah, we're maybe ten thousand barrels a year if we took like dominated the entire sports market in the world. Yeah, and in, there in is every this sport. fallacy. There's a fallacy about the economies of scale that anybody who's not in a factory, a manufacturing business, will tell you that oh, you just need to get to the economies of scale and that everything becomes cheaper. Well, to a point, and then it yeah. breaks again. Yeah, there is like this reverse tipping point where if you have too many, but not enough, you are stuck in no man's land. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So sorry, 2000, you need yeah. to now start scaling up. And uh, what happens? 
Yeah, tried for three years to find a plastic manufacturer, couldn't find one, run into this another Canadian living in Arizona. We bump into each other trying to sponsor the same league, and he says, we need to talk. And he says, well, I've solved the problem. I'm like, get out of town. And he's like, yeah. Like, and can I've you got just it. verbalize the problem for me? So why do you need to manufacture your own plastic? Is it because you need the margins to come down? Well, you need to get the quality of the product. It wasn't about the margins. It was actually about the quality of the build of the glove. You ah. need to build like gussets or like the pieces of fabric in between the fingers. And yeah, like, and I was, it was ridiculously wasteful what I was doing and making a glove, you know, it was being dipped. Ah, pulled out, okay, cut okay, apart. Okay. Like it just wasn't a quality build. Got it. So to get a quality build that was comfortable and durable, you needed to start from scratch. Cool. First principle thinking. Got it. Exactly. So, you know, couldn't find one. And this guy said, well, I, I found one. I found someone to build it and it took, and it took three years. And he says, I've solved this problem. And, and I, he said, would you be my distributor for the Canadian market? Cause I've heard about you and you know, I'd already heard about him and I'm like, you're here, you're doing something good. And, and he says, yeah, I just, I just figured out the whole thing. And there was a bit of a cat and mouse game of like, I want you to sign a non-compete and all this stuff. I'm not signing a non-compete. I'm already finding a way to solve this problem. I'm already selling in the market. And I'd actually figured out a, a solution on my own, build it in China and I would have made it from scratch. But he showed me a solution that was a higher quality solution. And I could instantly tell it was better than anything I was looking at doing on my own. And I said, okay, we can change right. the world market with this. And, and I mean, out of interest, did this yeah. other Canadian who lived in Arizona, who just happened to have the same idea you had, found a very similar solution initially, and then came into the same problem you'd come into at around about the same time, yeah. and then solved it that you needed it solved. That is, in and of itself, quite a serendipitous, unbelievable meet-cute. Well, it's an interesting side story because the reality is like there was like a couple of people in the pros wearing that product. I wasn't the only guy who saw that. Mm. And so this guy in the States actually played in Ottawa in, in another Canadian city. We yeah. almost in university, we almost ended up playing against each other. Like we were a year off of That's playing insane. each other and he wore the same product and he went through the same thing. Oh my gosh, these are incredible. Oh my gosh, these <laughs> suck. They need to be fixed. And he had the wherewithal to go and fix it. And part of it was like his family had money. And so when they said we need money and he also knew how to structure a business deal. Yeah. He structured okay. a business deal and found a partner and they solved the problem and got someone wow. to buy into his vision, which was brilliant. Yeah. So I signed on as a distributor and within two years, we were number one market share product in Canada in the football. Wow. wow. Like we dominated the industry in a short, short order. That is um, incredible. Two years, maybe four, Nick. That's my memory is a little fuzzy about the exact numbers. But sure. we grew very, very quickly. And from pros to university to high school to like little kids were wearing our product across the country within a couple of years. I mean, it's quite an incredible journey from Genesis to this point. It's roughly seven years, seven or eight years from zero to how big at this point in terms of turnover, staff, number of gloves sold. Do you have any recollection of that? Yeah. So we grew to, you know, well over a million in turnover or revenue, as we call it here, sales and, yeah, and fairly within a handful of years. And so we had fairly substantial business. You know, we had 
four or five staff in Calgary and then 14 sales reps across the country. So a team of around 20 people. And once you merged with this, I suppose I, I'm calling it a merger, but once you joined with this other company and you guys yep. became one unit, how did your role fit in this? Because, I mean, yep. is this the pivotal moment in this business? This was the near-death experience where you were like, uh-oh, somebody has solved this problem? No. So we're not no. even at that point yet. No, I mean, we're that's not even there yet. Right? Yeah. Because most people would consider that quite a quite a thing. And a lot of entrepreneurs wouldn't have the wherewithal to be like, Actually, maybe it's better to join forces than to fight this fight. The most notable yeah. example in my head is Peter Thiel and Elon Musk with PayPal and X.com. They both yeah. understood that there was destruction coming instead of cohesion. So they decided to join and become PayPal. So, yeah. I mean, it makes sense to me. Okay, so now let's jump. I want to jump straight to yeah, the yeah. near-death experience. <laughs> so you're doing a million plus revenue. You're about seven years in. And then where do you go from there? Yeah, so... Then we start layering in a couple lines because we're an independent company and they're a supplier of ours, right? So we're yeah. their we're their Canadian head office solution. We Got start it. adding other products in. We add in a really cool product out of Germany called <laughs> CEP compression, medical grade compression socks for athletes. We add in a bunch of other things, you know, but this football glove company was like at one point, ninety percent of my revenue, and then we got. We're like, well, that's really dangerous. So we we tried and find. We tried to diversify and find other brands and build them and get it down to eighty, down to seventy percent. And you know, the writing was started to be on the wall. Like we've been working together for quite some time. We started banging heads on some stuff, and you know, there were some differences that we just. No matter what we tried, we could never seem to make them happy. And no matter, you know, I think they probably felt the same at times, and. You know, I'm I'm talking, I've got some great business mentors and they're challenging me and they're like, Chris, it's not if, it's when. I'm like, oh yeah, like they're not forever with us. I just know it, you know, like it's so clear. And they're like, okay, well, what are you going to do? And I'm like, well, I told my mentor like, okay, this is what I'm going to do. Like people and what our game plan. He's like, okay, the next time we meet next month, I want to see a written plan with a budget of what yeah. you're going to do when this happens. Yeah. I'm like, okay, cool. So I write up this plan B. He pokes a couple holes in it, asks me a few questions. I file it away. Nine months later, and I, th you know, at that point, I thought we still had a couple years. Um, I go to this meeting in San Antonio, and it's over. Like 70% of our business walks out the door in one meeting. And and what was the justification from their side? Like, could they pull the lever on the contract? They didn't do anything in breach. They just like executed termination of your contract. Yeah, ultimately, we have we were ninety percent market share in the specialty shops across the country. Like competing with Nike and Reebok and Under Armour's coming onto the onto the scene, they're like, well, dude, we need one peg of Nikes. You know, we need one peg of Under Armours. We got the rest is yours. And we're like, so then this company comes as well, what are you going to grow in the next year? And we're like, not much. Like, because <laughs> we dominate the market. Well, you got to sell more baseball. I'm like, yeah, but your baseball product sucks, man. Like, it's not any good. Well, got to sell more golf. And I'm like, golf product, also not good. The places will not buy it. How are your sales going? Well, not great. And I'm like, well, how do you expect you us to sell it if you can't sell it? They were anyway, so that's why we could tell it was just on the way. We we kind of served our usefulness as a distributor in a way. And they're like, Well, we gotta go on our own. 
they were also preparing for sale. I found out and sold the company nine months later. And I'm uh, like, oh, were they cleaning themselves up? Who knows, right? But anyways, so it's over instantly. And I don't know, like, you ever heard of a plexectomy, Nick? No. You get a piece of plexiglass installed in your stomach. So when your head's up your ass, you can see where you're going. <laughs> so, so, I'm going to use that. Yeah, please do. So I'm in dire need of a plexectomy, like, cause I'm yeah. like, holy shit. Like I am, I'm literally vibrating with like, this is really bad. Like, and, and I'm, I'm very big on the moments of yeah. these near death experience. So that meeting, you were sitting there, just you and just him, yeah. or are your teams present? What's no, the just, deal? Just me, just him. We're away from the And he drops show. the bomb. Yeah. And then what happened? Like literally thereafter, where do you go? Where's the first place you walk to and what do you do? Yeah. So yeah, completely stunned. I kind of like zombie walk back onto the show floor. Cause I kind of like, well, what am I going to do? And I'm like, I got to figure something out. Yeah. My wife is like one of the very few business conferences she ever went with me. She's at this one with me. We're in San Antonio, Texas, and she gets horrible, like horrible sinus cold on the way down and, and on the way in. And she's back in the hotel trying to sleep it off. And I'm like, crap, like our, like I'm the primary breadwinner. Like she's def, she's a nurse. So like a bachelor of nursing. So she definitely has some for sure coming in at this point and doing all right. But like, you know, we're, I'm definitely a key. I employ all these people and across the country and okay like this is a really big problem i'm like well what can i figure out so i walked back on the show floor and i started making deals i mean it was kind of good timing oh yeah like i just said <laughs> so i was very subtle and i was like so some things have happened in my world that have made me very hungry for new partners and, um, to your credit, you must have a good reputation at this point as a very successful distributor. So you must have products wanting to get into your business and use your distribution network. Yeah, we had a good channels, good relationships in the industry. We were we were very well known, but not everybody knew us, especially, you know, and the people that there were only so many brands in the football industry. That was one of the big challenges for us. Mm. There was only so many products mm. and the big ones were all taken, you know, and the the smaller ones were so niche and you know there's some up and coming so i'd go to these shows this was a football show and i'd go you know, like let me see what's cool and new and so i'm walking the show floor trying to find like holy geez like let me find something new we need something substantial because this isn't like a little sideline accessory product we need which we had a handful of those but those weren't paying yeah. the bills yeah, you, you need know. like $700,000 of sales from a product. Chop, chop. Oh, yeah, like I'm over a million. Over a million, chop, point. chop, yeah. yeah. Yeah, like right away, what do we got to do? And lo and behold, like sure enough, one of the people I talked to that day yeah. had a, a portable net company. And they make soccer, <laughs> baseball, football, portable nets. Fold them up, put them in your car. Like nine sizes of soccer nets is actually where they were super strong. So I'm like sure. they have a eight by four net called bow net that fold up, put it in your car and drive to any field anywhere, turn it into a, a soccer field. You found them at that same conference or thing when well, you had this meeting. Within an hour of getting my ass kicked. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Pr pretty for fortuitous meeting. But, you know, I also didn't run and hide. Yeah. 
And there's a really, or there's a reason my book is called Relentless AF. You know, like it's, yeah, I was like, that's what it takes. Nah, you're not fucking knocking me down. And yeah. so, or keeping me down, right? He did knock me down for yeah. sure. And so I went back after it and found a partner and then went, went back to the hotel, told my wife and she's like, oh my gosh, this is, this is bad. And she's not a high risk person. Aside from marrying me, I joke, but she's just like, well, same, my partner, you? same. Yeah. Right. <laughs> like, so she's like, well, what do you do? Like, do we shut it down? Do you go back to school? Do you do whatever? Right. And I'm like, no. And what like, were the I'm... terms of the cancellation? Like, was it immediate? As of today, you were not having our products anymore. Or was there a period of. Yeah, they down? never, they didn't ship a, a single product after that day. We had, we just, we wound it up. I went back, talked to one of my key mentors and said, He'd been through that. At that point, I had a mentor that's been fired by, as a distributor, a Canadian distributor. And, you know, he's like, yeah, I've been fired by brands. It really hurts. And he says, this is what you yeah. do. And so he walked me through it and helped me navigate that. Incredibly helpful. And gave me some really great guidance. And really, he's like, Chris, rip the Band-Aid off. Like, it is going to be two weeks of shit. And then get it over with as soon as you can get it over with. And within two weeks, we dealt with all the tough stuff. And within 30 what is days, that tough stuff? it was free and clear. Tell, tell me about what that tough stuff is. Like within two weeks, what did your mentor tell you to do? Fire staff, contact distributors, like what? Yeah, yeah, we had to clean up. Well, I had to pull the plan B out, right? My head's up my ass. What am I, I going to do? Ask like, oh my God, that, I got yeah. the plan B. I'm like, okay. Yeah. I pull it out. A hundred decisions have been made with wow. a clear head. 98 of them were good. Wow. So I had to make two decisions instead of 100. Right? It saved me. What an incredible gift that that mentor gave you, preparing oh. you in such an incredibly detailed way that it wasn't this bullshit like, oh, just, you know, think about it. It was a detailed plan. Yeah. That's genius. Yeah, it was brilliant. So, Yes, I pull out the plan B. I start working the plan. And meanwhile, Peter, my other mentor, is walking me through the rest of it. Like, well, here's a lawyer you can talk to in this. And we decide right away, like, legal doesn't make sense. We don't really have a leg to stand on. You know, maybe we do. It's not worth the fight. Move on. Get it over. Move on with life. So we figure out a Build termination rather than agreement. destroy. Yeah. Yeah, just get, get on with it. Spend your life energy focused on other things. So did that as soon as possible. Yeah, told my team, laid my team off, everyone but one, right? There's this, wow. my integrator in EOS terms, his name was Frankie, you know, and he knew, he was my right-hand guide. He's like, well, this is ending at what point? What happens? I'm like, well, the plan is for you and me to rebuild it. And so I go back, I tell Frankie first, and he's like, oh, oh, that's not good. And he's like, hey, Chris, remember that conversation <laughs> we had a while back? Am, am I still part of plan B? Am I part of yeah. plan B? <laughs> and I'm like, 100% you are. And this is the plan. And so I had to go tell the rest of the team. And they said, well, does that mean we're laid off? And I'm like, unfortunately, it does. And I'm like, I'm really sorry. And they said, ah, Chris, we'll get another job. Don't worry. I'm, wor I'm worried about you. This is wow. your baby. Are you going to be okay? And I'm like, wow, thanks for caring. We're going to try and rebuild it. And this is what our plan is. And how long was it from the meeting that, that happened to you having to lay off your staff? Days or weeks? Yeah, it was within a week. Oh, wow. Yeah, I think okay. it was four or and five it, days later. 
I ask because it's important, right? One of my board members and mentors, when we were going through a similar thing, when we have five retail stores, 30 staff, he said, cut quick, cut deep, and cut more than you think you have to. Yeah. Yeah, we yeah. cut right down to two people. And we had a, we'd rented a warehouse at that point, 3,000 square feet. And the initial plan was like, run back to the house. And I used to have my business in my basement. And I'm like, run, run back to the basement and, you know, cut all costs. But it's, but in the moment, I looked at that situation and said, that doesn't make sense. Because what I hadn't thought about in the recovery plan when my head was clear previous was how am I going to rebuild? And rebuilding out of it. Yeah, if you go back to a basement, it was hard to find good quality staff that would work out of someone's basement because it just wasn't a professional environment. And so I'm like, oh, we actually will keep the warehouse, but we'll sublet it to other people. And so I found people that needed little nooks and crannies and we rented out space and had a bunch of empty space, but it covered a bunch of the costs, reduced the overhead. Obviously the staff left on very good terms and we were very fortunate with how that all went, cut every other expense that we could and then doubled down on going and finding new business. And the crazy thing is Frankie comes to me a week later and says, Hey Chris, I've been thinking about this. He was my sales manager, was his primary role at the time. He says, like you used to do my role back in the day. Should you not lay me off too to cut costs even further? And like, I don't want, he says, I don't want you to. Yeah. But if it'll help. But if it'll help and you survive, if the company survives because of it, you know, do you need to do that? And unbelievably, that's the kind of person who you will absolutely never retrench. The person who's willing to do that. Yeah. It was. That's incredible. Make sure we come back to that at the end because that there's an interesting development to that. Yeah. So I just told Frank, I'm like, well, there's no way. Because how can I rebuild the business if I'm doing all the day-to-day stuff? Yeah. Dude, I got to be out there making deals. I got to yeah. find, I can't be selling the thousand dollars to the store. I got to be making a deal where the hundred thousand, half million, million dollar potential, $2 million potential deals. That's where I need to yeah. be focused. He's like, okay. And he could also manage all the back end, shipping, receiving, sales management, store relationships, that whole business. The only thing I took care of was the finances. He's he one of those of rare expert else. generalists. Oh yeah, he was wise beyond his years, and you know, and someone I trusted deeply. And when he did things like that, you know, that built that trust further, right? Yeah, that's incredible. Okay, so you then at this conference when all the shit happened, you found this new portable net company that sure. became one of your first next big products. And yep. how long did it take before you integrated them before they started really taking off for you? Yeah, we probably, I mean, it always takes a little bit to get a deal done, but we got that one done fairly quick. Three or four months, we had a two to four months, we had a signed sign deal. And of course it was selling to all the same stores that we had relationships with. So we we did fairly well with that fairly quickly. The CEP compression that we're lo- we went into a different business category of running and triathlon with that business. I go to a big running event a few months later 
And, you know, same story. Hey, some things that have transpired that I got all sorts of room capacity. We are hungry for new suppliers. And do just every, like two other major brands, Ultra Footwear and Earbud Sport Earphones were up and coming. It, the running industry compared to the football industry was so crazy different at that point. Football was very stagnant, very little innovation, really hard to crack in. Running, every time you go to the show, there was like 40 booths with significant opportunities, creative hmm. stuff with potential for really big, not little sideline accessory stuff. And so there like is something interesting. Yeah. There, there's something really interesting in that, that uh, it was the difference between a organized team sport that requires a big field and real investment versus just some people who want to run. And yep. at that point, roughly 2003, four, running was becoming a real thing. Everybody oh, in the huge. world was like, let's go jogging. Like, this is fun. Yeah. So yeah, that B2C in sports seems to be a good play. Whereas football is more like a B2B play. Big deals, but very finite number of them. 100%. And this is 2012. So it's even more ah, that way. Running yeah, is even more exponential. Yeah. Oh, and same with triathlon is growing huge at that point. too. Yeah. Well, yeah, because football buyers, for the most part, the big money in football is in the equipment. And that's mm. all done by coaches. And mm. equipment and there's managers. only what a hundred coaches in the whole country, like yeah. or a thousand or whatever. Yeah. yeah, a few thousand, you know, and, and like you're saying, it's more of a B2B play. One buyer buying for many low risk, mm. not as innovative, safety focused, all this stuff, right? So they're not, you know, running like it's not really dangerous. So people no. are willing to try new stuff all the time and it's yeah. one off. And yeah. direct access to the market was the key. So Absolutely. the running world and triathlon, big marathons happen all the time, all over the yeah. country. What happens before a marathon? Well, they have what they call an expo. Yeah. With booths that you can buy a 10 by 10 booth for a couple days and put anything you want in it. And everyone has to walk into that race expo to pick up their race packet before they can get run in the race. Yep. So you get probably 70% of the runners show up at that expo and it's what they love to do. And they're like, well, what's cool and new? And we provided them with cool and new. And Amazing. so we were able to launch new products within 20 months of being fired by that supplier. We broke a revenue record by 50%. Wow. Yeah. I mean, there's so many interesting things there, but my, my question to you is what's the lesson in, in the hindsight of that, that you were hyper-focused 70% of your income or revenue from a single customer, then that disappears. You shit yeah. yourself and then actually double, double your income within the space of 20 months. Yeah. What's the lesson? Like what, if somebody's listening to this and they're focused and yeah. centralized, I'm trying to pull something out here and I can't verbalize it properly. Oh, I can. <laughs> yeah, that's why I'm asking. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, like crisis is such an unbelievably cool opportunity. And like it takes our brain to a place that we can't access otherwise. Like I couldn't have redrawn with a blank slate how I was going to design my business when I was, you know, neck deep with that football glove brand. You know, it's like, well, no, we've got to design the business around our existing situation is what I yeah. thought. Yeah. You get complacent. And when they were gone, we're like, okay, now I make my own rules. Well, we're going to do it this way. And if you don't want to play by my rules, fuck off. Like you're just yeah. not the right fit. 
And so I literally said no to some really good products because they smelled like that situation. And that's your purpose now, going all the way back to the beginning, where we started to say that you have to start evolving your own worldview and purpose about the businesses you're building, not just accept any kind of money, because not all yeah. money is made the same. Yeah, it's, ultimately we did, I did actually articulate the purpose in the sporting goods business to correct myself. It was about helping athletes live better lives. And it's, and we did pursue that, but it just, it ran its course for me after 19 years sure. and I needed out. Sure. But it, it was, we did have a purpose. My, it wasn't as, it was, yeah, you know what? My purpose changed in my life. It yeah. really was the right purpose for me for a very long time. Which is completely acceptable, right? And it's something yeah. in my 20 years as an entrepreneur, I've had to understand that you have to separate out your personal self-worth with the thing that you are building. Your identity yeah. cannot be locked into the business that you're building because if you have a bad year, then you have a bad year, not your business. Yeah. And those things, I mean, if your purpose changes, your business can change. If you want to sell your business, sell it. It's not the yeah. be all and end all. So, I mean, I'm oh. glad to hear you say that. So that's where that's where this move towards is you built yeah. this business for 19 years and then you decided to exit. Yeah, yeah, because I regrow the business. We crush our revenue records. We were, you know, and another year later, we're twice as big as we'd ever been. And, and I was like, like, now what do I do? Hmm. I'm done. Wow. Like, I'm bored. Like, what else can you throw at me? And quite frankly, like, I'm looking at, like, do I, I mean, I love what I do here, but I got other things to do. And I'm comfortable enough here but it's not interesting anymore. I, I need a new challenge. I've been, I'd been moving towards the coaching business for quite some time. And I'm at an EO retreat on this coast, coastal location in Vancouver Island, this incredible place overlooking the ocean is smashing against the rocks and this incredible restaurant that just the noise like quiets. And that like in my head, I like, I was like transcended out of my body or something. I moved somewhere else. And all of a sudden my friends at the table are like, dude, like what, what's up? And I'm like, I'm done. They're like, wow. what? And I'm like, I'm leaving my sporting goods company. <laughs> You're like with dinner. What do we say? What do we do? Yeah, exactly. Is there something going on? <laughs> I'm like, no, like I'm out. And they're like, what? Wow. Like when you talk about identity, it was my identity. I was the, the football glove guy, the sporting yeah. goods guy. 20 years I'm of like, your life. I'm like, I'm out. It's time to do something else. Like, what are you going to do? I'm like, hmm. I'm not entirely sure, but I'm going to go into the coaching world. Might be EOS. I'd been using it by then and maybe not, but I'm going to do something, but it's not hmm. this anymore. And so I made the decision there and I'm like, maybe it's just the retreat talking. I'll sleep on it, but I'm, I'm pretty sure I'm done. I woke up the next morning. I'm like, it's a hundred percent the right decision. And then how did you execute that decision? Told my team and made a game plan and transitioned out over the next nine months hmm. and started the other, the coaching business. And, and, and it and was, you didn't uh, sell the business. You didn't sell the equity. You still own the business. You still draw dividends out of it. How does that work? Yeah. I delegated every single role that I had to other people mm -hmm. and just became a guide advisor to the leaders running the business. 
and did that for three years from the sideline and just Hmm. was a coach for them. And then in 2018, after three years, I sold the company. Amazing. But at that point, I had zero role in the transition. Like leadership team was running it. They're still running it today. And Which is the dream, right? For any yeah. entrepreneurs to figure out how to transition yourself out of the business so that you can work on the cool shit you want to do afterwards. Yeah. yeah it was yeah. It was really fun. And, 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 you know, and I would have kept it, but I looked at the business long term. What I didn't do well as an active owner in the business was say, what does this business look like as a shareholder long term? Hmm. Because I'm like, I'm going to fucking win and we're going to find a way, right? Like I'm competitive and I'm like, so we willed this thing across the finish line so many times and it worked, you know, and it was fine. But then when I wasn't there, I'm like, do I really want my money invested there? Yeah. That's the key, right? Like a shareholder when you're there. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm like, oh, I'm not there anymore. And I'm like, oh, I don't like this asset in my portfolio now. Wow. Rather get the cash. And I, so I don't like the future of that industry. And I look at the players and what's happening. I think it's changing. The Zoom calls, things like this weren't mm. around 20 years ago. Mm. And they are now and they're changing how people are building relationships. Canadian mm. distribution businesses does not have a bright future, in my opinion, for especially for the type of stuff we were doing. Yeah. And so I'm like, I think it's time to sell. So, yeah, so we, so I sold and that was a, really interesting and challenging and good experience, ultimately valuable experience. Which I'm pretty sure we could do a whole nother episode of this podcast on. So I feel like it's a pretty good segue for me to ask you a final question and then hand over to you to tell people where they can find you and follow you and be coached by you. I think the final question I want to ask is, what did you learn from that business as a core lesson? Because I'm sure there were many in 20 years that you kind of carry with you today as a coach. Yeah, I think that I think probably one of the most valuable things, like as a leader, one of the most important things we can do is build trust with our team, with our partners, with our customers. I think, you know, building trust plays, it it works well in the long run. And when the trust is broken, you know, that's, it's like, okay, well, this is, that's hard to recover. I think that's probably the key lesson that I would share there and the, and the fact that crisis is, is an opportunity and that COVID hit my coaching business drops 40% overnight. What did I do? I'm like, this is going to be cool. People were like, pardon. I'm like, I had to like tone it down because people's lives were like, people were losing their lives and family members and people were scared as hell. And I'm like, this is a cool opportunity. You just wait. And they're like, my clients were like, what's the matter with you? I'm like, don't worry, follow me. We got this. It's true though. And, and my business grew, dropped 40%. And by the end of the year, we'd had our best year ever. And 2021 was the best beat that year. Hmm. And we grew massively through COVID, but the mindset of like, nah, there's going to be opportunities that come from this. We just got to have our eyes open. And that's the key is the mindset, right? It's the choice to see crisis as an opportunity and not to exist in crisis as a victim. Yep. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's, it's easy to say like, you know, it it worked out well for me. Not every time is it going to work out that well for me, I'm sure. And I have had, you know, my youngest brother passed away when he was 19 and that was a crisis that I didn't handle quite as well, you know? 
But eventually I did eventually use even that as a springboard. I'm like, I'm going to stand up and have courage in this moment in his memory rather than run and hide. And so I'm going to honor his memory by doing my best in this situation to make him proud. Yeah. And so, cause he had it. Yeah. It's one of the things I learned in my life is not to run and hide. Yeah, it's incredible. I think that is a great place for us to hand over to you, give you the floor. Please tell people where they can find you, where they can follow you, where they can be coached yeah. by you and anything else you'd like to pedal. The floor is yours. <laughs> oh, fine. <laughs> yeah, so relentlesschrisjones.com is my my main platform. It's the book that we launched, Relentless AF, launched on Monday. So the timing for this was amazing. Thanks for helping me line that up for this. The, so yeah, that's the the book link. That's on Amazon, of course. And we hit, man, we outsold Stephen Covey and Patrick Lencioni and Kim Scott. That's amazing. <laughs> that's like, amazing. It's like, you know, maybe not for a super long period of time, but- Don't put be, conditions on that. Own that shit. <laughs> we're pretty damn <laughs> yeah. excited with how yeah. well we performed in our first week. And so really, really happy with that. Yep. And that leads, there is a link there to go to my EOS Worldwide microsite as well. I'm in deep with that organization. Now it's eight years of coaching people how to implement a set of tools to get what you want out of your business as a leader. And that's just unbelievably fun and passionate. I'm really passionate about that work aligned with my life's purpose of helping family focused leaders get what they want you know, create game-changing transformation. So it's a ton of fun there. And so I'm a coach in that world, coaching coaches as well. So I'm in, like I said, I'm in pretty deep. Yeah. But yeah, that that's that's where you find me. Well, that's amazing. I'm sure people can yep. also find you on LinkedIn and Twitter and search for you all over. I'll link all of, of that in the show notes. But Chris, I'm so excited to say that for you as an entrepreneur and a coach, it's not over. Thanks, man. I appreciate the opportunity. Oh, it's a pleasure.